We can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm having a hard time seeing this morning for some reason. It's dark in here. Um, Romans 5, and we want to read verses 12 to 19. Romans chapter 12, or 5, verses 12 to 19. You follow along in your Bibles, and I hope you drank your coffee and ate your Wheaties and took your brain medicine this morning because you're going to need it for the next uh, couple studies that we go through this section of Scripture. So let's read it, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given... But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God And the free gift, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's obedient, disobedience and the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Father, we pray this morning that as we uh, just barely scratch the surface of these uh, verses this morning, just in way of introduction, setting a foundation for these, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us understand what we're reading, that your word would um, come alive to our spirits through the power of your Spirit. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of Scripture, if you do any investigation, if you go and you see what people think about this and comment on it, a lot of commentators will just pass over this part of Romans chapter 5. And we just read it together and you can kind of gather why. It's, when you get into it, it's kind of confusing, but on the surface, it's, it's really not. Um, a couple different people have different ideas about this text. One commentator says it's one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Paul's writing. Um, another commentator suggests that perhaps it was this passage that Peter had in mind when he, he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, there are some things in Paul's writings that are really hard to understand. <laughs> Uh, because when you read through these verses, it's just like, what in the world is going on here? And you can go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of probably thousands of pages of commentaries and still maybe not have a clear idea what Paul is talking about here. Um, 
The difficulty isn't with the text itself as far as the main idea, um, but when you get into the, the, the minutia of this text, it begins to kind of just unfold, and you start chasing rabbits down certain trails. And so I kind of had to make a decision going into this. Are we going to chase rabbits for six weeks in this section, or are we going to maybe chase one or two rabbits in two or three weeks? Now, next week, we're going to have our brother Ken Needham, right, speaking here. And so um, rather than get into the, the, the text and really start to dice it apart, I wanted to lay a foundation down. And then next week, we'll kind of take a break from this. Ken Needham will be here speaking. And then the following week after that, we'll actually get into the text of Scripture. So you're holding an outline in your uh, hand. It really doesn't mean anything. Um, it will mean something in two weeks, okay, because a lot of the stuff I'm going to share with you this morning just isn't there, and I apologize for that. But the more I prepared um, Saturday and, and, and uh, just kind of finishing some stuff, I thought, you know, I need to go into some topics that uh, we haven't covered so that we understand the foundation upon what Paul is writing. It's actually rather fascinating when you come to this portion of Scripture because it's complex and yet it's simple. It's both. Um, the, whole, the whole point, okay, is, is really that one man, Jesus Christ, by one work, his death and his resurrection at Calvary, has affected salvation for all those who would put their faith and trust in him. And Paul is sharing the message up to this point that you're, you're justified by putting your faith in Christ. You're justified by putting your faith in Christ. And that went against everything that the Jews that he was talking to, especially, believed. And even in our modern-day society, I would say that it kind of goes against what we, we believe. The idea that somebody else is going to do something for us on our behalf and change everything, it's just not in our vernacular to think that way. And a lot of times we think that, you know, the harder... Uh, we work at being good, um, the, the, the more religious we are, the greater the access to God will grow in our life, and eventually we'll have that right relationship with Him, and eventually we'll be in heaven. That's just in our fiber. We think that somehow we, we have to work this out. And it gives us some credit in our own personality saying, well, yeah, I have a part in this. I have a stake in this. Um, there's something that I'm doing for my salvation. There's a level of virtue and goodness that's gained by that, I think, in our, our own lives. Um, but that's not what Scripture says. That's just simply not what Scripture says. The scheme of man-made religion always says, if I'm going to be right with God, there's got to be something that I do. You look at all the world religions, I don't care, even part of the, some of the Christian religions, Catholicism, different religions, they include, you know what, you've got to do certain things to earn grace from God. And it's called human achievement. It's called works, salvation by works, if you will. And just like we believe that today, the Jews in Paul's day believed the very same thing. They believed that if they were going to have access to God, that they had to be religious. If they were ever going to enjoy any forgiveness of sin, that somehow they had to reach a certain point of spiritual achievement or spiritual enlightenment in their own lives, and they did that by being religious. Religion basically says that God grades you by what you do. 
Religion is a way that man is trying to reach out to a holy God, reaching up higher and higher by certain achievements in their life. They think that somehow they can achieve favor with God if they just go to church enough, if they just get baptized, if they just read their Bible enough, if they just pray enough. On and on the list goes. But the message of Romans that we've seen in our studies from chapter 1 up to this point, and and it continues through the whole book of Romans, basically is that access to God and forgiveness of sin is not something to which you make a contribution to at all. It's something that is provided for you. It's provided for you by one person and one person alone. Now, we don't like to hear that. We like to think somehow we have a play, we have a stake in this, we have a, a, a part to play. And so, at this point in Paul's teachings, the, the, the Jewish hearers of his teaching, the readers and the, those who he's speaking to are saying, wait a minute, you really expect us to believe that one person can affect so many people? That's the question that they're going to ask. And Paul, in the way that he teaches, he always assumes they're going to ask a question. And so he starts down this trail in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, to answer their question. How can one person affect so many different individuals? But it's not just one person, I would say, that affects so many different people in the world. It's actually two people. Two people, one in particular, but two men have affected the whole human race in a way that it's never been affected before, for all eternity. And those two men are listed here. Who are they? They're Adam and Christ. Those two individuals affected the world in a way that nobody else has ever, nor will ever, affected. it. You say, well, why is that true? Because Adam, the scripture tells us, brought death. Christ brought us life. So the next couple times we speak and have studies together, we're going to be talking about the subject of from the curse to the cure. From the curse to the cure. We're going to be spending some time in Genesis. Then we're going to be coming back to Romans and seeing where Paul takes us. But before we even get into that, I think it's important to understand that we need to recognize where we're at in Paul's letter. Just to kind of, in a quick way, review, uh, to look at the theme of the context here and what we're looking at. Where does verses 12 through 19 or 21 fit in this letter? Um, And that's what I want to put up there on the, on the screen for you. Because Paul's arguments have to do with the nature of our justification. That's what he wants us to see. And these aren't in your notes, and I apologize for that, but you can copy them down or ask me for them later, and I'll email them to you. Paul's arguments have to do with the nature of our justification. And, and we have to understand this before we go any further. So some of this is review, but it's, it's good that we're all on the same page. Number one, we can be assured of salvation because God has made pay, peace with us through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we can be assured of salvation. It's not something that we have to guess about. 
It's not something that we have to wonder about. You don't have to go to bed wonder, wondering if you die in your sleep whether you'll be going to heaven or not. Based on our faith in the work of Christ, we can be assured of that salvation. That justification, us being made righteous in God's eyes, is something that has already been done. It's accomplished. It's not something that's in flux. God doesn't look at us one day and say, oh, you're not a really good Christian today, so I think I'll, I'll cancel your justification. No, it doesn't work that way. All right? We sang this morning, you give and take away, you give and take away. Well, one thing he doesn't give and take away is our salvation. Amen? It's ours. Once we come to Christ, once we put our faith and trust in Christ. And it's because God has made peace with us. We didn't make peace with God. He reached out to us. And he did so by sending his son and having his son die as a perfect sacrifice and satisfy his righteous judgment against sin. Because when Christ died on the cross, all of our sins were placed on him. Even though he never committed a sin in his life at all, he was perfect. God had to treat him as if he had committed all the sins of everybody who would ever put their faith, their trust in him for salvation. And it was placed on him. Secondly, we can be assured of our salvation not only because God made peace with us through the atoning work of Christ, but secondly, because through that same work of Christ, we have been brought into a new relationship with God in which we continue to stand. Do you realize that, and we looked at this last week and the week before, and you can get those messages if you're not up to speed on that, but God, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We were enemies of God. We had a hostile relationship with our Heavenly Father because of our sin. There was something between us. It's called sin. And it was a gulf that nothing could breach. Nothing could cover that. The only thing that could do that is the work of Christ. And so when we put our faith, our trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, God says, you know what? I have to cancel this old relationship with you. I have a whole new relationship with you. Have you ever been in a kind of a topsy-turvy relationship with somebody? Maybe it's been a landlord, tenant, or an employer, employee, or maybe even a spouse, whatever. And you kind of just say, okay, hold on. Can we just start over? Can we please just start over? That's kind of what God did. He said, we're going to start over. And we're going to start over because my son made it possible. I'm going to bring you into a brand new relationship. And that's the relationship that you will continue to stand in. Well, thirdly, we can be assured of our salvation because of the sure and certain hope that we shall see God. And we've seen this in in our text previously. That as we look down through eternity and the time to come, one thing that God assures us is that we will see him what? Face to face. That's a promise. That's a promise from God. God does not lie. If you're here this morning and you put your faith, your trust in Christ, I guarantee you without any doubt that one day you will stand before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. I mean, that's a glorious thing. And that's a promise from God. We couldn't be assured of that if we weren't going to be saved. If one day our salvation depended on what we did or or how we felt or whatever. Our, Our salvation is secure and it's secure because of the work of Christ. 
assured because of that certain hope and his promise that we will see him. And then fourthly, we can be assured of salvation because of the way that we are able to endure sufferings in this life. We looked at that. How Paul counts it a blessing when he suffers for the cause of Christ. I don't know about you, but when you go through a hard time, when you go through a tribulation or a hardship or you're suffering, and more than that, you're suffering for the cause of Christ, And you realize that, you know what? I'm getting through this. God is getting me through this. I'm able to endure this as hard as it is, as difficult as it is. God has somehow come under me and and holding me up through this trial in my life. It could be a marriage. It could be sickness. It could be finances. It could be your children. It could be a number of things. We all have different trials in our lives. And when we're able to endure the sufferings of this life, that assures me in my salvation. I see the hand of God working and and holding me through that hard time. And then fifthly, we can be assured of our salvation because God sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Not when we were saved people, but when we were his enemies. It goes back to kind of touches on that new relationship. But Jesus never said, oh, you know what? I'll save you, but first go clean yourself up. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and you invite them to church? And they say, well, you know, I'd come, but I, I don't really feel comfortable. And, you know, once I get my act together, you know, what's that mean? You know, I've been a Christian for I don't know how many years. I just don't know how my act together. You know, I'm still trying. It's this is the way it goes. You know? Or maybe, you know, I'll just wait, you know, just, just hold off a little bit and let, let me find myself. <laughs> what does that mean, find yourself? I mean, the people come up with ridiculous things, but really what they're saying is that, you know what, I don't, I don't feel comfortable coming to a religious place because I'm not religious. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I, I am doing things that are displeasing to God. And you know what? I won't feel comfortable in a holy place. Remember one time when we were remodeling the the church, one of our neighbors came over and said, come on in. No, 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 I'm not not going in there. He's peeking through the doors back there, you know. I said, what? It's just a building, pal, you know. No, 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 I'm not. But the roof would fall in if I went in there. People have um, just a mixed up idea. What religion, what going to church, what that all means. And see, we can be assured of our salvation because Christ didn't come to us and say, hey, you have to clean up your act first and then I'll I'll grant you salvation. No, he said, you know what? You're enemies of my father. You're sinners of the worst. And I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to lay a way of salvation for you. We don't have to clean ourselves up in order to to come to Christ. That one song says, come just as you are. That's how Christ embraces us, just how we are. Now, that doesn't mean we stay that way. We're not saying, okay, you just come to church and just live like the world. No. 
But hopefully, as a non-believer, you're coming together with God's people. There should be a little bit of uneasiness. See, the problem with churches today is they make it so easy for non-believers to come into the fellowship. So you come to a church on Sunday morning and it looks more like a rock concert you'd go to on Friday night than it would be a worship service. And the pastor gets up and says some nice things that make you feel good and then you leave. And you're thinking, well, that wasn't bad. Well, yeah, it wasn't bad. It doesn't do anything for you either. You didn't hear any truth. You, You weren't able to interact with anybody. God, Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. And then the last thing, sixthly, we can be assured of our salvation because if God has justified us, if he's the one who made us righteous, that's a greater thing and demands more of God than glorification. And he will surely do the lesser. See, we're promised glorification one day. As I said previously, one day we'll stand in God's presence. That'd be impossible if we weren't in a glorified state. And he guarantees that. Well, saving us is a much greater work than glorifying us. John Trapp says this. You can put the quote up there. I think it's in the the PowerPoint. It's a greater work of God to bring men to grace than being in the state of grace to bringing them to glory. Because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is distant from glory. What's he saying? He said, it's a greater work of God for you to even get saved, let alone to keep you saved. That's nothing. God's going to do that. And so we need to be reminded of these things, that Paul is trying to encourage us in our walk as believers that we can be guaranteed of our salvation. Not because we come to church, not because we've been baptized, not because we try to live some religious life. No, because of one thing, because we put our faith and trust in one man's work. And that one man is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary, that he died. He gave up his life. He was buried. And on the third day, Scripture says that he rose from the dead. When you put your faith and trust in the work of Christ, he saves you. He saves you immediately, and He saves you for all eternity. Now, there's another thing that I want us to focus on here. We've seen in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that God, as we just went over, argues the certainty and even the finality of our salvation. That we are saved as a result of God declaring us, justifying us, saying you are now righteous before God. You have a new standing before your God. And it's based not on you, but on the work of Christ. Because we didn't have any righteousness of our own. He gave us the righteousness of Christ. Christ took all of our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. That's the transaction that happened. And now Paul argues that when God saved us through the work of Christ, that justifying us by faith, he wants us to understand that justification is not the only thing that's involved. It's not just about justification. Justification is important. It's very important. It's God's declaration to us that we are now righteous. But in addition to justification... 
And really, in conjunction with it, I want you to understand we're also united with Christ. We're united with Christ. And we call that the mystical union in theological circles. The mystical union. It's a union between the person who is saved and his Savior. And I want to spend a little time this morning speaking on this before we even get into Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Because unless you have this foundation of understanding that you are one with Christ, the whole idea of Adam and, and, and Christ, you know, the, getting into that study, it makes no sense. And so I want to look at this morning this, this union that we have with Christ. And the union has been revealed to us over and over in Scripture We see that we're in Christ, that we're made one with Christ. But I don't know if we fully understand it. And I'm not saying you'll fully understand it when we're done this morning, because I still don't. I've been studying it for a couple weeks. But I think Paul has really anticipated this is a direction that these minds were going to go. And I think that it's found all the way back in verse 10 of Romans 5. Look at what it says in verse 10 of Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. How many of your translations say, by his life? Does anybody say anything else? Through. Thank you. Those are the true translations. I found one translation, Young's literal translation, that literally says what the original language says. It doesn't say through at the end. It doesn't say by his life. And you say, well, this is kind of splitting hairs. It's very important. I really believe this. It's important. In the Greek text, the last three words are not through or by his life. Literally, if you look at the the Greek language in the literal sense, it says, in his life. That we are saved in his life. In whose life? Christ's life. And you say, well, is that really important? Oh, yes. It's it's way important. Because when you, excuse me, say through or by his life, the words seem to indicate one of two things, or even both things. That first of all, we're saved through Christ, That is, by his work on the cross. That's true. And or that we are saved through faith in that atonement. Both of those things are true. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's not talking about our faith in the work of Christ. The first part of verse 10 does say that. But the second part, the very end, goes far beyond that. He says it's not by the work of Christ. No, you're saved in his life. See, the argument is this. If God has saved us through the death of Christ, through faith in his atonement, he will certainly save us by our being in his life. See, Paul is affirming the security of our salvation. You know how far it had to dig to figure this out. And at this point in the letter, 
you know, you may not fully, and I don't fully understand what that means. But it makes perfect sense once you get into verses 12 through 19. Because Paul begins to explain it. He begins to say why it's so important that this work went through one individual. Why is that important to us? Because we're part of that individual. We're in him. We're in Christ. The union with Jesus makes possible the sequence of deliverance from sin, from death, and the law. And it really makes possible the resulting victories that Paul unfolds in the next three chapters of Romans. Now, when you stop and you think of union with Christ, what do we exactly mean by that? It's definitely mind-stretching. It's something that's beyond, way beyond my pay grade to even think about this stuff. So we're going to try to do the best we can with what we have. But I want to just kind of probe this doctrine a little bit and and point out a couple things. Um, First of all, there's two points to keep in mind. The union of the believer with Jesus Christ is one of the three great unions in Scripture. The first, when you stop and think about the Trinity, the union between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we, we call that the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. We speak, as well as in Judaism, they speak of God as one God, and so do we. But he has three personages. He has three distinct persons in the Trinity. And so when we say that we believe in one God and he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, you start to scratch your head. Wait a minute. Didn't you go to math class? One plus one plus one does not equal one. But that's what the Bible teaches. And we're not going to go into all that this morning. That, that would be a whole other sermon. But trust me, there's a lot of different places where you can point out that God is three in one from creation all the way to the end. So the Bible teaches it. We don't quite understand, can't explain it, but the Bible teaches it and we believe it. The second great union in the Bible is not the Trinity per se, but the second one is is found in the, the nature of Christ. Because there's two natures in Christ, isn't there? We say that he was what? fully God, and yet he was fully man. You know, he's not 50-50. He's not. He's not 50% God, 50% man. No, he's 100% God, 100% man. Well, that's mathematically impossible. Well, that's right. And I don't get it. I don't understand how it is, but that's, he's not a multi-personable, you know, personality. He's not walking around saying, boy, am I a man or am I God? I don't know. That's not Jesus, okay? He was fully fully aware of who he was. The Lord Jesus Christ is one person. Nevertheless, he is both God and man. He possesses two natures. Did I tell you you'd have to drink your coffee this morning? I told you. You know, this is, this is tough stuff. If you understand that completely, then you're a way better theologian than I would ever dream of being. I don't fully understand it. But that's what the Bible teaches. Over and over and over again, Jesus Christ says things like, oh, you've seen the Father, you've seen me. 
you know. And yet, on another hand, you see him hurting like a, a human being would hurt. He bled. He, you know, he, he had issues like we have. He had hunger pains. So he had two natures. He was two distinct natures in one body. And then the third union in Scripture is the union between believers and Christ. And that's kind of what I want to focus on a little bit this morning. It's important. The second important thing is not only those three unions to keep in mind, but the second point to keep in mind is that the union of the believer with Christ is not something that Paul invented. Paul didn't come up and say, yeah, I'll start using these these words in Christ or in his life. And yeah, then I'll I'll create this mystical union between Christ and the believer. That looks good. That'll make me look good. No, that's not how it was. As a matter of fact, Jesus, even though he didn't use the term, nobody uses the term mystical union. That just means a union that we can't really understand. But he did teach in other words and he taught in other analogies, you might say in the New Testament. And a couple of them I just want to point out this morning. First of all, the vine and the branches. Look over at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture. These are illustrations that Jesus used to talk about this union between himself and those who would follow him, his followers, the believers. This occurs in one of Jesus' final discourses before his arrest and before his crucifixion. Now look at John 15, and this is known as the, the vine and the branches. Verse 1, I am the true vine, this is Jesus speaking, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not uh, bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide, what? In me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. You can do zero. Zip. I mean, it's it's a very common sense illustration. You know, we've had some fruit trees over the years in our backyard, and a couple of them I've attempted to kill on occasion. You know, and I go out there because they make such a mess and it's not a fruit that I like, so I go out and lop all the branches off. And I notice after the branches are lopped off, they lay on the ground. What happens to them? They begin to turn brown. Why? Because they're not connected to the tree anymore. And then they get brown enough and the leaves fall off and I can cut them up and throw them out. Fortunately, the tree keeps coming back every year, so it comes back stronger the next year, so I'm doing something wrong. But anyway... Now we have people that like this kind of fruit and come and pick them for us, so that's fine. But the idea is, apart from the vine, okay, the branch, you can't really do anything. Why? Because you're part of it. You're in it. See, that's, that's the idea. We're connected to Christ. That's the new relationship I was talking about. 
So he uses the example of the vine and the branches. Another illustration that Jesus used was the Lord's Supper. We talked about this last week a little bit in Matthew chapter 26. He says on the same evening that Jesus spoke about himself there as the vine and his disciples, okay, as the branches. On that same evening, he gave instructions to his disciples to observe the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. And he said this, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What's he showing? He's showing our participation in his life and in his death. Jesus also said that I'm the the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. He even challenged the, 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 the Samaritan woman Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to everlasting life. See, it's on the the emphasis here of Jesus' illustrations are on the permanence and the empowering nature of himself in this new relationship with us. Jesus, by faith, becomes a permanent part of us. Just as much as what we eat becomes part of us. He also talked about a foundation in in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 25. And he used that illustration, I think, to illustrate the same kind of union He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 24, Matthew 7, and puts them into practice, he's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because what? It had its foundation on the rock. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, For you are, speaking to the church, God's building. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, he told the Ephesians, Paul did, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Once again, he's talking about a union that we have with Christ. The very next verse, he says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2.21 He says, in him, in him, it's in him. I mean, it's only because we are in Christ that any of this is possible. And it also shows that those who are joined to Christ, that are in Christ, are also joined to one another. Which plays out a whole different dynamic in the church. We're part of the church. We're all in this together. We don't have the freedom just to go out and do whatever we want, whenever we want. See, we're part of a church. We're part of a bigger family here. I mean, how rude would it be if your family was having dinner and you were a member of that family and you just didn't show up? 
You just said, I don't want to go. I don't want to be around those people. That'd be insulting to your family. In the same way, when we're not part of the body of Christ, in the way that he wants us to be, we're not helping ourselves. And then, one other illustration here, the head and the members of the body. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he says, And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. People get confused now and then in churches. They think, oh, who's in charge of the church? Oh, the elders are in charge. The pastors are in charge. No, we're not. We're not in charge of this. We're, we're under shepherds. We're just people that kind of oversee things. It's Christ who's in charge. He's the head of the church. It says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. It says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow into him, who, into Christ, who is the head, that is Christ, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, this is very foundational to what Paul's going to get into here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. The last illustration I want to use, and we'll be talking a little bit about this tonight, but the last illustration that Jesus used was marriage. The illustration of marriage. That's by far the greatest illustration of the union of the believer with Christ and of Christ with the believer is the idea of marriage in which a man and a woman are joined to form one flesh and one family. That's the image in the Old Testament. Hosea, for example. There God compares himself to the faithful husband who is deserted by Israel, the unfaithful wife. Jesus picked up on that theme when speaking of marriage, the marriage supper. All who have faith are invited to. But here Paul, he kind of develops this this theme and probably is one of the best passages that we know of in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, you need to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. 
See, the emphasis in that image is upon love bonding. It's a marriage made in heaven, you might say. It's a marriage not only made for this life, but for all eternity. And so when we get into these studies here in Romans in the coming weeks, we need to be kind of reminded that this foundation is there already. If we have put our faith and trust in Christ, then we can know without a, without a certainty that we are one with Him. That we have a union with Him. came across a, a study in a, in a little book called Union with Christ. And he kind of, by John Murray, and he kind of outlines what redemption accomplished and how it to be applied. And he's talking about the union with Christ. And he says, first of all, when you think of election, when you think of the idea that God elected us to be saved, the fountain of salvation itself in the eternal election of the Father is in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, where? In Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Father elected us from all eternity, but he elected in Christ. That's important. We don't understand all that's involved in that. But there was no election of the Father in eternity past apart from Christ. When people say, well, man, your religion, you know, you say you have to come to Jesus and you have to go through Christ. Sounds kind of closed-minded. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't write it. It's one way. Only one way. There's not many roads that, that lead to heaven. That's what the enemy would have you to think. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what church you go to. You know, you can do whatever you want as long as you're, you try to be a good person. And No, that's a lie. As far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its fountain, we find union with Christ. It's not something that's tacked on later. It's from the very outset. Secondly, our redemption Not only our election is founded in Christ, but our redemption. It's also because the people of God were in Christ when he gave his life a ransom and redeemed them by his blood that salvation has been secured for them and they are represented as united to Christ in his death, resurrection, and exaltation to heaven. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, But God, being rich in mercy, because of this great love, with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I mean, that says it right there. Your life is hidden in Christ. So don't ever think of the work of redemption apart from that union you have with Christ. Ephesians 5.25 
says that the body of Christ and Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? Because he was joined to it. And not only redemption, but you think of regeneration. Ephesians 2.10, it is in Christ that the people of God are created anew. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus onto good works. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us, beloved, that at the beginning of salvation, in actual possession should be in union with Christ because we have found already that is in Christ that salvation had its origin. You couldn't think of having being regenerated without Christ. And then the last thing, glorification. It's in Christ that the people of God will be resurrected and glorified. 1 Corinthians 5.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, the great scope of this salvation from God's election in eternity past to the glorification in the future, all those things gives us assurance of salvation, but it's only assurance when we're found in Christ. That's why Paul's dealing with this doctrine right here in the middle of this this chapter almost. The greatest things to encourage our security, the greatest things to encourage our walk are in Christ. So you have to ask yourself this question. Am I in him? As I sit here this morning, am I really in him? Am I a Christian? How do you know that? Well, you can't go in eternity past and see if God chose you. You can't do that. That's impossible. You can't go into eternity future and kind of transport yourself into the future and say, oh, I'm going to be glorified, so I guess I'm saved. You can't do that. What do you have? All you have is what's in the present, what's right now. You remember the marriage illustration we used a little earlier? Ask yourself this question. Am I married to Jesus? If you have taken a vow promising to take Jesus to be your loving and faithful Savior in plenty and in want, in sorrow and in joy, in sickness and in health, for this life and for all eternity. And you could say yes. God has pronounced that marriage. He created that union between you and Christ. And just like you would say in a civil ceremony, what God hath joined together, no man, no one, will ever put asunder. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know this was just kind of an introduction to this chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, but I pray that it would lay a foundation of who we are in Christ. I'm a firm believer that there's a lot of believers struggling today in their walk because they they fail to understand who they are in Christ. They forget the moment that they were saved, God placed their life in Christ. When God looks at them, He sees Christ. He sees His Son. He sees His righteousness. 
And we're thankful for that because we don't have any of our own righteousness. What a glorious thing to be able to sit here today knowing that we are not just saved because of our faith in Christ or, or justified because we, we trusted Christ, but that we have actually become one with Christ. And more importantly, we have become one with His body, the body of Christ. And we can further appreciate the responsibilities and the privileges that come with such a, a union, with such a blessing. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be complicated. It's not complicated. The Bible clearly says that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short of God's glory. We all need a Savior. We need somebody to reach down and save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us us from our sin. And we cry out to you, a holy God, and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Someone who can't help himself. God will answer that prayer and God will save you. And he'll bring you into that new relationship, that new union with him and Christ. And for the first time in your life, you'll be able to do what God wants you to do. And so we just pray that you would do that work in the heart of those folks. And as believers, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't forget what it means to reach out to a lost and dying world and bring this message of hope and forgiveness to those who've yet to hear. That, Lord, you want to use us in that process. That you want us to be part of a body. You want us to to link arms and to pursue similar things as the body of Christ for your glory. And Father, I pray that we would do our part in all those endeavors as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.